0: Good afternoon, or good morning, depending on where you're joining us from today. Before we get started, I am Matthew Hart, the CEO for Longman's Publishing, producers of today's discussion. I did want to emphasize that although we're seeing more and more opportunities to get together, um, the virtual events and the virtual wor- world is here to stay, and that does change how we network and learn about each other and work together. To that, please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, you'll also be able to find our speakers on social media, LinkedIn and Twitter, so please feel free to connect with them as well. I would like to thank Microsoft Canada for their help and support in creating this event. Uh, without their support, we wouldn't be able to produce uh, today's discussion and offer the value and the information that we have here today. Uh, and that is a Longwinds mandate, and then we work hard to ensure that everything we bring brings real value to, to you. So again, Thank you for joining us today, and guiding us through the next 90 minutes is someone that many of you will know, and if you don't know, you should know, the Chief Technology Officer for Canada Health Infoway, Mario Valtellina. And Mario, they're all yours.
1: Well, thank you, Matt, and welcome, everybody, to what promises to be a really interesting uh, hour and a half. While I have the microphone and before proceeding, I want to put a plug in for a toolkit that Infoway has produced on AI. Uh, it is currently focused on governance and risk management, so not overly technical, and you are able to download it from the Infoway website at www.infoway-inforoute.ca. Uh, having gotten that plug out of the way, I'm now very happy to present our keynote speaker, uh, Helia Mohammadi, who will be, um, sorry, who is the chief data scientist and healthcare lead for Quebec and Western Canada at Microsoft, and will be talking to us about driving healthcare innovation with AI entrepreneurship. Helia, the floor is yours.
2: Wonderful. Thank you, Mario. Uh, just to double check if everyone can uh, see my screen now. Yep. Okay, perfect. So, hello everyone. My name is Helia Mohammadi, and I'm the chief data scientist and uh, healthcare industry lead for Microsoft Canada. I use pronouns uh, she and her. And today I'm wearing my eyeglasses, a white top, and a yellow jacket. Before I begin, I wish to acknowledge that the land on which I'm meeting you on today is the territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Chippewa, and Wendat peoples. And it's now home to many diverse First Nations, uh, Inuit, Métis peoples. And I also like to acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. I will be covering several Areas during this keynote, including some guidelines around how to become an AI entrepreneur in your healthcare organization. I will share um, some existing AI applications in the Canadian healthcare um, system and some of the best practices in maintaining an AI project in healthcare. Then I will share Microsoft principles of ethical AI. And finally, I will address the AI skills gap and how to address it. I really believe that the first step in designing an AI strategy is to either identify the innovative stakeholders who might like to call champions or AI entrepreneurs or to become an AI entrepreneur yourself to bring AI and technology closer to your organization. So who is an AI entrepreneur? It's the person. Within an organization who actively searches for gaps or challenges to improve a process or a system in their own organization. And in general, they are reimagining healthcare with the goal of deploying AI infused or innovative solutions to solve for those challenges to improve outcomes. Uh, AI entrepreneurs, unlike entrepreneurs, can make a big impact with a much lower risk and oftentimes they are much successful if uh, they receive executive sponsorship from their peers or the high-level decision makers. When you have uh, the patients and the care teams in the center of your focus, there are recurring steps to surround them with the right tools and the technologies. It's an active practice of building and developing new solutions and updating existing healthcare apps, enriching the healthcare line of business applications or platforms uh, and include uh, platforms such as Teams, Azure, or Dynamics, to really strengthen the overall healthcare ecosystem and then extending and embedding new features and capabilities or configurations. Uh, within your solution, and then connecting and leveraging APIs or connectors or extensions such as Azure Fire API or IoT connectors to connect the newly developed technology into your existing solutions, and finally enabling and deriving functional implementations such as you know the last mile customization um to you know each stakeholder's needs and drive interoperability and you know data governance and you know the adoption and the use and then you know collect feedback and repeat the process of build and reach extend connect and enable across data workflow and cloud scale analytics to further improve Outcomes uh, such as improved patient outcomes, uh, care team empowerment, especially during this pandemic, uh, improved clinical and operational outcomes while protecting the health information in the secure and private manner. I'd like to talk about three elements um, uh, basically in AI entrepreneurship that can help with the constructive cycle of reimagining healthcare to be able to achieve these outcomes. And these three elements include um, overcoming challenges when you're leading a change, improving the AI adoption readiness, and lastly, leveraging the right tools and trainings. These three elements are uh, you know, identified to be the key contributors to the success of the AI entrepreneurs in Canada and also around the globe, based on many conversations that we have with the healthcare decision makers on a day-to-day basis. Now, let's drill into each of these elements. Uh, When you're leading a change, in many cases, uh, the innovation and the AI-infused solution you're aiming to bring to your organization falls outside the scope um, of your day-to-day roles and responsibilities. As a result, reimagining the healthcare demands more efforts and may take longer compared to uh, when you are tasked to deploy such solution. What worked best? is to seek executive sponsorship and bring together a V team with other talented and like-minded individuals in your organization. Training and skilling becomes a critical and crucial and an inevitable part of the process, both for the developers of the new AI solution and also for the end users and the stakeholders to adopt to the new change and to use that technology. This is, uh, you know, it's shown that the, uh, you know, leveraging the citizen data scientists and upskilling your existing teams is more efficient and cost beneficial uh, and, you know, you can upskill your teams on how to leverage new technologies to create innovative solutions and also educate them on how to use the new tools um, through change management practices, for example. Uh, The most efficient path. I believe is is through partnerships with the technology providers and platform builders themselves such as Microsoft to bring their training resources to your organization. Another challenge when leading a change can be around productization of proof of concepts or proof of values. The challenge lies within having technical bandwidths, um, you know, limited technical resources, to move from development and test phases to to, to production, and on the other hand, to receive approvals, and in some cases, clinical trials to successfully include the new technology to your workflow. The second element uh, that was shown to contribute to the success of an AI entrepreneur is to improve readiness of the organization's AI adoption. This uh, can, and Very well extends to provincial and national level healthcare AI and data sharing um, adoption. You know, despite proven high security and privacy of cloud platforms, and despite knowing that data sharing will unlock tremendous potential to improve outcomes, there's still resistance to build uh, an infrastructure that allows for data sharing and data interoperability to facilitate secure access to data uh, and analytics. As an AI entrepreneur, you need to understand why a certain organization or health authority at provincial or national level is only ready to, you know, for, for innovative pilots and not ready for bringing innovation closer to the healthcare system easily. What can be done today so that you know, the innovation, innovative pilots we are running today can become examples and success stories uh, and best practices of tomorrow. There are several examples that you know can solve for questions like when can an ideal uh, that is emerging from an emergency department for example become useful across all the er's in canada how can we understand where the patients are across the emergency department and on their care journey at a fingertip how can we triage patients easier and more efficiently how can researchers and scientists access data and collaborate and develop algorithms in a scalable, robust and secure way. Um, I will share examples of how Ontario and other provinces are currently paving the way in, in the space. And the question is, how can we scale these innovations, scale it up even further to expand to other healthcare organizations and provinces? And how do we go beyond a province and across the country and how do we prepare Canada for more innovative technology? Uh, With projects like virtual care, we can extend and, and expand and analyze the impact of virtual care compared to more traditional care. We can give more access to patients to increase equity of access to healthcare and ultimately improve care. An AI um, entrepreneur often finds themselves with legacy applications or existing infrastructure that maybe RKA cannot be able to support an interoperable interaction. And improving the infrastructure will pave the way for future innovations so that they are more easily integrated. We've seen that breaking data silos and creating a data sharing platform or a data warehouse, if you will, can significantly improve efficiency and can significantly reduce costs. And it's really because maintaining a single source of truth is more efficient than keeping and updating multiple copies of the same data. This will lead to more accurate data-driven results by the scientists and data analysts in your organization through accessing more data. The organization's readiness can also be improved through developing an AI and innovation strategy. At Microsoft, we have supported countless organizations to build their AI strategy, especially when it comes to their responsible AI principles and guidelines. And finally, the last uh, element is to be able to access the right tools and the technologies to drive accelerated innovation and outcomes. Tools such as pre-built AI or cloud components that, um, you know, such as different APIs for Microsoft Cognitive Services that can be leveraged to infuse AI into your solutions without having a PhD or in machine learning or AI. These components include transcribing uh, speech-to-text or text-to-speech to to create human-like interactions. It includes translation capabilities, image processing, data analytics using drag-and-drop platforms, for example, to reduce the number of coding, and identifying text and digitizing scanned documents and health reports, which is a big challenge, and including chatbots or conversational AI or health um, text analytics, and many more. In many cases, um, these AI components are ready to be used uh, as building blocks, if you will, with minimal efforts and with only a few mouse clicks. Um, And because these components are pre-built and built and managed by highly experienced teams, with the main goal to democratize AI, it makes it so much easier to be able to leverage these components. The low code and no code platforms on cloud can also help in developing AI solutions uh, with you know, minimum to no coding experience. And these tools can aid uh, the domain experts such as clinicians or nurses or decision makers who don't have access to a team of developers or do not have a computer science degree to create uh, and develop AI-powered solutions. With these tools, you can explore visibility of AI and also cloud in solving real-world challenges in only a few hours or days. A fantastic example I'd like to share with you is a dashboard for color codes uh, such as code orange, yellow, and black that was developed in Ontario uh, by the nursing department. These dashboards were built um, by, you know, domain experts who d- don't have any coding experience or cloud background, uh, and who wanted to make a change in their organization and improve quality of care both for the patients and the care teams. And you know, with this solution, the different units are notified of a missing patient and map map that to the floor of different departments uh, and can identify the areas where uh, those areas were searched or the areas that needed to be combed for a missing patient during a code, especially in a pediatric hospital. Another asset would be to build partnerships with AI and data and cloud partners uh, to become your extended technical team and consultation resources. Um, As we all know, AI is already Infused into several areas of our lives for good. Uh, and it's not a question of whether to use AI in healthcare. It's really a matter of when and how. Now, let's explore some of the AI innovations in healthcare. One of the areas that AI can help with is to drive intelligence out of the EMR or EHR data. For instance, with Epic, AllScripts, Meditech, or other EMRs. Um, we can wrap innovation and innovative technologies around these EMRs to drive better outcome. There are numerous areas that cloud and AI can be beneficial in the healthcare space. One of the areas is the healthcare digital front door or uh, outpatient digital technologies. We have the technology to seamlessly integrate into the EMRs to drive data informed decisions or observe patterns and analyze the data in a bi-directional fashion. And this is of importance uh, as the care teams are comfortable interacting with their existing EMR solution or the technology that they're using and wrapping around their tool of preference. We can give them more capabilities without the need for them to log out of um, their EMRs, to look at their e-referrals, for instance, or give patients the ability to book or reschedule the appointments and look at predicted wait times, for example, so that they choose the right hospital based on their distance and the wait times. Another AI-powered solution that helps with operational optimization is predicting the length of stay to optimize for the duration of a patient's stay while reducing the rate of patient returns. These are some examples that are currently deployed on cloud by the champions and entrepreneurs of several hospitals across the country. We know that you know the technology is here. We have access to the solutions that can help alleviate some of the existing healthcare challenges, and we can analyze patient records to mine the data and derive more data focused observations. We can build a data sharing platform that enables future analytics and infusion of other technologies into the existing pipelines. I really believe the key is in creating and building a scalable, secure, elastic, yet flexible and agile infrastructure so that we can seamlessly integrate uh, the entrepreneurial solutions uh, into the care routine. We need to consolidate the data, um, then break the data silos in a secure and private way and also build solutions to allow patients to be the custodians and the owners of their own data. And this is really important. This way we can include the patients and also their caregivers in the process to decide whether or not they want to participate in research studies and more importantly, to give them a portal uh, to have a holistic view of their care journey, their test results, their diagnostics in one place. And you know, on the other hand, we need to facilitate advanced analytics and AI to develop meaningful outcomes based on you know, the consented and consolidated data in this data warehouse, if you will. I would like to play a video uh, for you that shows some of the applications of AI in healthcare.
0: It's the symbiotic relationship between the human and machine that brings the magic of AI to medicine in a meaningful way.
3: Now we have the tools to make a huge difference to human life. Cancer research is increasingly powered by data. Those data remain siloed across institutions.
4: We're creating a data
3: ecosystem
4: that allows people to share data and making sure that we're doing that in a way that still maintains the privacy of the patients.
2: With the power of AI, we can go after the unknown.
3: And I can guarantee that we'll find something that nobody expected.
5: Sudden Infant death syndrome scares every mother and father, and it is a problem we have to change. The collaboration with Microsoft AI for Health will help to start this next step of our discovery. Our data show very convincingly clear correlation between smoking and SIDS, and just changing behavior can save children's lives. You cannot measure the benefit of that.
4: It's a sad day when the patient comes in and I can't impact them.
6: Through AI for Health, we will be
7: building an AI solution that can autonomously diagnose diabetic retinopathy.
6: With the portable camera, I can take healthcare to the patients who would not be able to come to us. I want you to look right here.
0: Going forward, we can
4: address the 500 million patients that are out there and disrupt this disease. AI for Health and IRIS together can have that impact.
1: Today there are 200,000 leprosy patients diagnosed every year. If you catch it in the stage of a skin lesion, you can cure the person. We are teaching an AI algorithm to recognize leprosy in an image of a skin lesion. With AI, we can help patients help themselves to get to the right experts at the
3: right time. If you can help a child to not lose their fingers, that means
5: everything. Innovation comes from bringing different perspectives together. And what an amazing partnership this is for all of us. When you see that you can make a big impact on somebody's life, that's the greatest thing ever.
1: We can help eliminate the oldest disease known to man and make history. That's how we want to contribute to the world.
2: I mentioned uh, responsible AI earlier. At Microsoft, we have developed six principles that guide the development and deployment of any AI solution to be ethical. I always emphasize that the use of AI needs to be closely and strongly regulated to make sure that the solution leads to what we call a responsible AI solution. And this can be done through the creation of an ethical framework. When we are um, uh, including any AI-powered solution, we have the responsibility to make sure that the solution is ethical. And moreover, we need to study the social impact and potential human harm to mitigate or even halt the use of AI. Although our goal is to democratize AI, as I mentioned earlier, so that domain experts and AI entrepreneurs can access it easily we do not allow misuse of our technology for that reason we have put together the office of responsible ai to closely um, you know probe any ai powered solutions and share our feedback with our customers and partners Um, we need to make sure that the machine learning models are transparent uh, and the humans are held accountable and more importantly, AI solutions must be designed to be inclusive, uh, private, and secure. We have a team specifically dedicated to ethical AI in Canada to support our customers and partners and you know, with designing a fair, transparent, accountable, uh, private, and ethical AI. Our team in Canada is led by our National Technology Officer with many individuals from different functions, including myself. We talked about supporting researchers and data scientists. As an entrepreneur, one of the areas to improve is to support the researchers in your organization. Or if you are a researcher, here is a framework on how to communicate your needs to the IT to get better support from your, um, you know, basically for you and your peers in that organization from the IT. The Research Center of Excellence on Cloud Framework not only can address the challenges of accessing data and breaking data silos and collaborating with peers seamlessly in secure and private manner, um, it, it, and also accessing compute resources to run experiments faster but also it can extend the support to empower the researchers to achieve more with the tools and technologies and programs and best practices and trainings and architecture samples and many, many more. This framework is really a turnkey and comprehensive research offering that includes six pillars, uh, each of which contains several modules, if you will. And these modules are composable, which means Uh, That they can be leveraged on, uh, you know, basically one at a time or in groups. You don't have to deploy them sequentially. Ultimately, what we're hoping to bring to you through this framework is a close partnership. Uh, We know research requirements inside and out, and we want to be your partner to help you design your own research environment so that you're able to leverage. Uh, what worked with other institutes and learned from what didn't to get to 80% of the deployment quickly, and then uh, you know customize the remaining 20% so you can stand up a secure uh, and reliable environment in a timely fashion. This is a you know bird's eye view uh, breakdown of this framework. I want to highlight some of the uh, some of the key modules here, um, especially under the security and governance. We really want to streamline compliance with a comprehensive portfolio spanning 60 certifications to make it easier to basically provide granular access control and role-based governance in addition to identity management and multi-layer security um, so that you can streamline cross-team and cross-organizational collaboration. On the data and AI analytics pillar, we have tremendous number of tools and technologies for different end users whether for the IT who are supporting research workloads or for the domain experts who are not proficient in programming languages giving them tools to create decision support systems for example medical image classification in a few hours or for the data scientists and the machine learning engineers who prefer interacting with CLI encoding. coding. Uh, we hear many times from our customers that their hard drives are failing them or uh, you know they find maintaining multiple data silos challenging. With this framework, you're able to break the data silos uh, and put in place data sharing platforms with granular access control and secure manual, and you're also able to build metadata management so that the researchers or the users of your data can see what the data looks like without actually accessing the data before permissions and approvals. We also have solutions around data de-identification, solutions where you can, uh, you know, containerize your algorithms, for example, and run them against the data without being able to even look at the data. On the compute side, um, to address the research workload spikes, Traditional IT typically procures more hardware upfront, which increases the capex expenditure, and ultimately, you know, the researchers are limited to certain types of compute, which will get old in a few years. And also, you will have, uh, you know, the hardware sits in the facility unused during those idle times. So you can access high-performance compute and virtually unlimited compute resources with many different specifications and configurations. Uh, We also provide confidential computing through algorithms such as homomorphic encryption. The collaboration and development pillar also includes solutions such as trusted research environment, which creates a secluded highly secure environment um, as a self-serve platform so that IT can pre-define these workspaces and the researchers don't have to rely on IT for every single project that they want to run. So it's very light on the IT workload and it's highly secure. And finally, with the last pillar, we offer extensive trainings, uh, whether one-on-one or hackathons or events. And this is particularly very important when we are facing AI skills gaps. Um, we offer the largest number of documented and open source content uh, you know, in the world. And, and through our partner ecosystem, you can also have access to teams of experts and extend your technical resources based on the work you're, you're performing. Now let's shift gears. Um, uh, and you know, talk about the use of mixed reality in healthcare. As an AI entrepreneur, you need to have visibility over the art of the possible to bring the right tools in the mix at the right time. And as I mentioned earlier, this is possible when you have a solid interoperable infrastructure and data solution so that we can bring more advanced technologies to the care platform. Um, And, you know, when we're looking at augmented reality and virtual reality, we're talking about the extended medical reality. And, uh, you know, this technology is used uh, not only in education and simulation and trainings, but also in digital therapies to do pain management, for example, or managing the mental wellness or palliative care. And one of my favorite use cases of this technology is the pediatric care and where virtual reality or augmented reality glasses like HoloLens are used to distract the kids when they are going through painful or uncomfortable examinations or procedures. It can also be used for patients who are locked up to their beds due to lack of movement so that with this technology they can feel more connected and have a more normal life. I would like to play a very short video to demonstrate some of the capabilities that uh, mixed reality can bring closer to the healthcare system.
6: Medicine is in the midst of digital change. Mixed reality and artificial intelligence are already improving patient care today. Virtual Surgery Intelligence, or VSI, is doing just that. With this software solution, MRI, CT, and other medical scans are displayed in 3D in Microsoft HoloLens 2 mixed reality glasses. This gives the patient a deeper understanding of the results, surgical procedures, and treatment methods. Before surgery, the doctor uploads the CT and MRI data onto HoloLens 2. The VSI recognizes the patient through anatomical landmarks and positions the stored image on the surgical site with millimeter precision. During the after-surgery round, the patient's data is quickly retrieved and displayed using VSI and HoloLens 2. At a glance and without a computer, the doctor can concentrate fully on the patient, answer questions, and discuss follow-up medical care. Being able to easily dictate a report, take photos, and retrieve archived images saves valuable time, facilitates everyday life in the hospital, and provides quality assurance. That will also make other processes in the hospital more efficient. VSI and Microsoft HoloLens 2 define a new medical standard.
1: So, first of all, Halya, thanks very much. And thank you for showing us the capabilities that Microsoft has built in the the space. Uh, Always a visionary organization. Uh, Right now, we're going to move on to a speed round of uh, presentations with our first presenter being Sheila Agarwal. Sheila is the Chief Medical Information Officer for Diagnostics and, uh, sorry, Diagnostic Imaging and AI with Nuance Communications and Sheila is going to talk to us about the overall market landscape for imaging AI. Sheila, please go ahead.
7: Thank you so much, Mario. Thanks for the introduction, my name is Sheila Agarwal and as uh, he mentioned, I'm Chief Medical Information Officer at Nuance for Diagnostics and AI and I'm also an abdominal radiologist. So today I'm gonna be talking about the market landscape and giving a general overview of AI and its uses currently in medical imaging. So why medical imaging? Well, first, because I am a radiologist, so of course it's an area that is uh, near and dear to me. But secondly, because nearly every patient story starts with an image and that's why it's more important than ever to find more efficient effective ways to share data and insights to bridge medical information silos and to increase positive patient outcomes and to decrease costs so as you can see here almost 80 percent of imaging uh, of of patients have imaging somewhere associated with their journey in healthcare. And additionally, there's a huge cost to the healthcare system associated with this, $65 billion. So 80% of all hospital and health system visits include at least one imaging study, but there's some issues here. 15% of imaging studies are duplicated, of recommended imaging is not followed up or completed, and $375 billion is attributed to waste uh, based on misdiagnosis. So as you can see, these are all opportunities where AI can come in and really provide high value impact in radiology and add value to the radiologist and to the healthcare system as a whole so i want to talk quickly about the various types of ai uh, that can that you can see you know that one could relate to each of these issues but even more broadly so quickly just to go through the various types of ai in medical imaging i think the one that most people think of uh, automatically is interpretive ai so this is of course computer Uh, aided imaging, computer aided triage, computer aided detection, or computer aided detection of disease uh, or diagnosis of disease. So this is where the AI is looking at the pixels or looking at the image itself and helping the radiologist in that interpretive process. AI can also uh, help in that interpretive process uh, in the processing of the image itself. So whether to make the image more clear for the radiologist to look for a particular diagnosis, it can also help in the quantification of different findings on the image, again, to help in that interpretive process. When it comes to non-interpretive AI, we can think about AI that helps in workflow efficiencies. So, this could be image-aware location of prior imaging that might have been done at, uh, at other institutions. So obviously, this would help in the 15% of imaging studies that are all duplicated. It can also help in follow-up management, so making sure that the appropriate uh, stakeholders within that healthcare pathway are aware of recommended imaging follow-ups and making sure that those um, are, are uh, actually occur. Other types of non interpretive uh, AI Can be text-based AI, so natural language processing, and this can help the radiologist in report generation and report structuring. And for that, I just want to give one quick example of that, which is the Nuance uh, ambient mode, which is inside our dictation software called PowerScribe1. And here, what you can see is that ambient mode allows the radiologist to keep their eyes on the image but be sure that all the information that they're seeing on that image is automatically inserted into the right field of the report so that the downstream referring physician is able to see a standardized structured report with actionable data in in the appropriate area. But the radiologist can do what they do best, which is to look at the image and uh, report not based on this structured field having to switch from one screen to another, but stay Uh, on the image and all of the information is automatically uh, populated where it should be. So now to switch gears and talk about uh, a little bit more on the interpretive AI. Here I have what I call the periodic table of, of imaging ai what you can see on the left here are the various different imaging modalities and uh, sorry on the top here are the various different imaging modalities and on the left here are the various different subspecialties of practice and imaging and what each one of the squares within this matrix then represents is a particular use case in which ai could be applied for example we have an mr of the knee which may find or show a PCL tear. So this is one very specific use case where narrow AI could help the radiologist. And of course then, by looking at each one of these squares as a whole, we have the entire landscape of possible use cases where AI can help in the radiologist interpretation. And this uh, comprises approximately 23,000 different diagnoses that radiologists currently look at using imaging. What does the market landscape look like today? So in the US, we can look at this over time and say, okay, how many AI applications exist and where do they currently exist? And what you can see is the, the, Adoption or not the adoption, sorry, the uh, commercialization of AI was actually quite slow at the beginning. And then by 2018, you can see that there was quite a jump. And again, in that similar matrix format, you can see the subspecialties on the left and the various different modalities um, on the top. And here you can see a heat map of the different areas where AI uh, tools were being developed and commercialized in radiology. So by 2018, 18, there was a marked shift in the um, acceleration in terms of the speed of commercialization. And as you can see that this continued through 2022, whereas the predominant uh, number of algorithms do exist in neuroradiology and then thoracic imaging or chest imaging followed by breast imaging. So quickly, I wanted to also show what this heat map looks like for Health Canada right now. And I, this is by no means complete. I'm, I'm not an expert when it comes to the Canadian landscape. But from what I could find, this is what the um, Health Canada landscape currently looks like with nine cleared applications um, in these various areas. Um, and specifically, we can see here um, are the various different uh, products that have been Cleared for use in Canada. And each one of these, even though I only have four here, this does actually represent the nine that were shown on the last slide. Um, It's just some of these, for example, AI Rad Companion is uh, five different uh, tools in cardiovascular, musculoskeletal, pulmonary, brain, and prostate MR. Lastly, I just want to spend one minute talking about a different way that we can categorize and see uh, imaging AI. So First, I showed you things based on the subspecialty and based on modality. Here, what I want to show is how we might be able to group these different AIs based on the value proposition that they bring to healthcare and to the radiologists. So very quickly to walk through these, can't see, this is where the AI is helping in tasks uh, where The radiologist physically cannot see the finding, whereas the computer could. So this could be things such as using uh, AI to to find things on a non-contrast scan, whereas the radiologist needs contrast to see that uh, uh, result, for example. Or it could be very complicated volumetric measurements, such as measuring an entire area of fat that a computer can do, whereas a human can't. Uh, The next area is can't miss. These are tasks that could be easily missed. They could be potentially on the edge of the film, incidental findings that are tangential to the reason that the scan was uh, performed. So for example, a lung nodule that's uh, incidentally seen on the very top of an abdominal study that was was, uh, done for appendicitis. The next category is can't stand. These are these, those tedious tasks that are difficult and time consuming and really contribute to physician burnout. So multiple measurements, um, a lot of the tasks involved with paperwork and reporting. And lastly is uh, the category of can't lose. So this is where there's the potential for radiology to be disintermediated because there are tasks that downstream physicians want That the imaging might be able to do so again these are the four different value propositions that you can see um, within radiology ai today thank you so much
1: and thank you sheila that was fascinating i'll definitely be thinking more of this next time i have my picture taken uh, we're now going to move on, and I'm going to invite uh, Robert Greer to our virtual stage. Robert is with the Hospital of Sick, uh, Sorry, the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, and he's going to talk to us about recruiting for AI teams.
3: Uh, hello, everyone. Um, thank you, Mario, for the introduction. Uh, my name is. Uh, There we go, my name is uh, Bob Gur, as Mario said, I am the technical lead of the artificial intelligence and medicine for kids program here at the hospital for Sick children in Toronto. Uh, And what our program really uh, seeks to do or what it was born out of is is the realization that uh, at least here and in many uh, academic medical centers, there's a ton of data science and machine learning research already done. And um, what we uh, need to do is figure out a way to take this from research, uh, and actually clinically deploy stuff. Because if it's not making it through to clinical deployment, kind of what, what's the point? So our uh, program was established to basically solve a lot of the common challenges and build an infrastructure to, to really scale that. Uh, and as the technical lead, I'm, I'm both building the, the technical system, uh, which we're working with Microsoft and Azure to build, um, but I'm also building the, the people team that's gonna enable it. And that's what I wanna talk about today. Um, some of you are, are probably thinking the you know the, the same thing you know I want to deploy ml models into production. What are the kind of peoples? what are the kind of skills that I'm going to need to do it? So the first thing we really need to to think about is you know what are we trying to do? Are we you know interested in just deploying existing ml solutions? Uh, as we heard before from Helia and from Sheila, there's lots of these solutions coming around. You know maybe our focus is less on deploying homegrown solutions and more on off the shelf solutions or um, let's say you're from an academic medical center and you want to create a new ML uh, solution and you want to deploy that, or more likely if you're the latter, you really want to do both. So what are the kind of people that we need uh, to do that? So say you're uh, just wanting to deploy a model. Typically what you would need, um, at least at the very beginning from a uh, technical perspective is is a systems engineer and not to uh, scare people, this is really kind of the same as as what typically exists in in hospital settings already um, deploying ML models aside from the software being different small variations in the hardware. It's really kind of a, a, a standard thing. It's not 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 anything really new uh, or anything, um, but I would what I would want to introduce you to is the um, the recruitment of a, a translational resource, and I am—I I will admit a little bit of bias here. This is uh, kind of where I got my start at SickKids, as being what effectively effectively grew into this translational resource. But I can't stress enough how important it is if you actually want an ML solution that's deployed to actually be effective in the clinical environment uh, to have this kind of translational resource. So if you're deploying an off the shelf system, it could be something as simple as a, a clinical resource that has a technical background that could be that kind of bedside or clinically embedded resource. Uh, to get uh, to basically gather feedback and help iterate and make sure you can close that loop back to the, the technical team. If you're actually building models, then again, it's it's that feedback loop of taking the feedback that you're getting from people at the bedside, feeding it back to the technical team so the solutions that you're building can, can ultimately improve. So say you're um, uh, actually interested in, in also creating and, and deploying a model so the first thing i would say is uh, take everybody from the previous slide copy it over here uh, you'll need those people as well uh, don't let that uh, uh, dissuade you though um, other than that you're going to need uh, a data scientist obviously typically if you're in this kind of pathway uh, you already have these people i know at sick kids we have tens of of data scientists around that are actively building models But if you need to get it from kind of an academic exercise where people are are largely taking a data set and uh, generating some output, uh, if you really need to take that and actually operationalize it, especially if you have to do it uh, at scale, it doesn't really make a a whole lot of sense to download all of that work onto a data scientist. Um, So in that case, you'd want to uh, invest in, in an ML engineer. And what an ML engineer really is, is somebody who's going to take models developed by data scientists, build the processes around it and basically make it uh, ready for production deployment. Um, they typically have a strong background in ML and software engineering, um, but uh, aren't necessarily involved in the uh, model development itself, more in the, the processes surrounding it. Uh, and as your program matures, uh, a data engineer is somebody that you would uh, definitely want to invest in. Sort of like an ML engineer, they work on on kind of pipelines and processes, but more around staging and setting up all the data beforehand to get uh, the data into a standard form to put into an ML model. Uh, and as we've heard, I mean, the medical world is filled with all kinds of different type of d- types of data that exists in different forms in different places. So a, a data engineer is really uh, somebody who's um, uh, you know going to be very key to pulling it all together and making the lives of, of everybody else uh, much easier. Um, so with uh all that said um you know how do you find these these kind of people what's the the recruitment thing and and i'll I'll first say is you definitely don't need to hire all these people at once a lot of people so myself as an example i worked as kind of a data engineer ml engineer for a while i crossed the boundary you can start basically as small as as big as you want uh the other point i would note is is you would whether you are ultimately looking to deploy on the cloud or on-premises you are going to need um um, these types of people, so recruitment uh, it is as these days uh, the the persistent challenge, uh, and one of the biggest challenges we face uh, as as a healthcare industry or or especially as hospitals is we're really not the typical place that that people go to look for work uh, especially in these areas. So overcoming that is, is, uh, can be very challenging. Um, and it's also a super competitive industry. Um, and with that comes uh, pretty high compensation uh, requirements. So I know specifically in Canada, in our, our public healthcare system, it can be quite hard to compete with, um, companies like Microsoft that are willing to pay, uh, much, much higher, uh, compensation amounts. Uh, for people and the other thing we're up against really is the, the the effect that the pandemic has had which is more and more people working from home uh, and people uh, or people wanting to work remote even in different countries um, and and that is something that at, at least in our our industry and in, in our area in, in public health care is is typically not common. Um, the other thing that's going on, obviously there's, there's lots of churn, So pe- people are moving around, but I'm going to come back to that because that's also, uh, I think one of the strengths that we have as an, as an industry to actually retain and recruit great talent. So how do we actually go about, uh, about finding these problem people and solving some of the previous challenges. So based on my own recruiting, uh, experience, speaking with people that I've recruited and, and looking around it at, at other hospitals, the number one piece of advice. I would give is to stick with the job titles and descriptions that are in line with industry. So those titles that I just gave you are industry titles industry kind of uh, descriptions. And why that's so important is because so often in healthcare, we come up with job descriptions and titles that we think are very descriptive and, and derive it uh, and you know get at what we want people to do. But if you're coming at it from the tech industry, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So if you keep things standard, people can really basically understand immediately what the the role is gonna be. And to overcome the challenge of of having people just know that you can work here, uh, it's really important to advertise. And we've had um, quite a bit of luck with, you know, social media and and recruitment sites. But one of the techniques that I was introduced to uh, by somebody that we hired that ultimately led to us hiring people through this mean, this means was actually leveraging online communities. So there's a wealth of data science communities uh, within uh, chat apps like Slack, as some of you may be familiar with and telegram where people are always working on problems and answering challenges. Most of these places have job boards that you can post. And I have found an amazing wealth of talent there of people. Um, The other thing is, is. It, you know be creative um so we're still i'll admit chal- uh, struggling to to recruit people in in certain aspects and you know part of our creativity is we're going to try to leverage some of our marketing power here uh to build a bit of a marketing campaign to to basically just try to introduce people to the idea of working here and the other thing is is be patient um, there are a lot of people out there and, and in fact uh, some of my greatest hires are people that have come from the tech industry that are uh, interested in and in coming and working for some uh, a, a group that's more has a more tangible benefit so rather than you know being working in a tech company building building an ml model that's going to drive you know more advertising revenue into the company people are now wanting to come and, and actually work on something that they can find uh very meaningful and uh linking back to churn that I talked about before, tech companies also tend to be a lot less stable than than jobs in the healthcare industry, and and people saw the the volatility of of employment through the pandemic, and are now choosing to to come to places where there is a bit more security. So be patient, you will find great people. I know we have. So thank you very much,
1: Mario. Thanks, Bobby. Uh, I'm sure there'll be all sorts of resumes coming your way uh, uh, shortly. We're going to keep moving, but before we do, I would invite anybody who has questions to please enter them in the question area of the um, GoToWebinar control panel, and we will be having a question and answer session uh, after the next two presentations. We're now going to invite uh, Mehdi Somji, who is Director of Innovation and Partnerships at Trillium Healthcare Partners, and he's going to talk to us on how um we should be evaluating these machine learning and AI technologies. So, Maddie, please go
4: ahead. Thank you and I'm just trying to, are you able to see my screen or not?
1: We can see your browser that says connected to GoToWebinar. All
4: right, let me
1: Now we can see your PowerPoint,
4: yep. Perfect. Is it in presentation mode, I hope?
1: It was, and then it exited.
4: All right. I apologize for that. Hopefully that's uh, good.
1: Yeah, that looks good.
4: All right. Awesome. And so, um, so thanks so much. And so my name is Maddie I'm the Director of Innovation and Partnerships at Trillium Health Partners. And today I'll be speaking a little bit about uh, cloud computing as well as AI evaluation. And maybe I'll focus a little bit more on AI evaluation. Um, and walking through a little bit of background around Trillium. So we, do, we are the largest community hospital within Ontario with about 1.7 million patient visits annually. Uh, and that's uh, incredibly important when we talk a little bit about AI setting a little bit of context and a little bit about some of the data and the patients that we see we have a lot of diversity within our community so about 51 percent of patients or, or residents who are born outside of Canada within our catchment um, quite a number of uh, you know immigrants that do identify as visible minorities seniors different uh, levels of socioeconomic status and again lots and lots of data when it comes from both from an emr perspective as well as medical images a little bit and uh, kind of double tapping on on what robert had mentioned around our team and so yeah, it is definitely a team sports and we do have whether it's from a clinical perspective from an architect perspective or data scientists and engineers as well as pms that help drive a lot of this work. And so I'll share a couple of examples of our AI deployment and evaluation lab um, to give you some real world examples of what this could look like within an organization um, and some of the team and expertise that are really behind this. I'm gonna pause maybe for about a minute just on this slide to mention and really highlight some of what Helia had mentioned around that cloud-based uh, environment, which really helps unlock the way that we work with Whether it's our scientists, our clinician scientists, researchers, or even external partners, the ability to uh, upload and have our data available within a governed uh, cloud environment, which, of course, adheres to privacy, security, all of those elements, uh, and follows those principles of ethical ethics, as well as de-identification. But the ability to provide governed access to our data when when we're working through, whether it's from an AI evaluation perspective or others, um, it's really helped unlock the abilities that we've had as an organization and so uh double clicking on everything that Helia had mentioned around the benefits of the cloud and when we think about AI evaluation and so I know that Robert had mentioned two types of models where you may have um, a model where you're deploying existing ML models or you're developing ML models and so in this scenario for instance you have an AI model that we're developing we typically use a a data set that's available to us, perhaps within your own organization, and then you're deploying that model within your organization. And when we're thinking about scale, there are some specific implications we need to think about when it comes from an AI evaluation perspective. So one of them is when we think about our patient distribution. So patient distribution at our hospital might look very different than a hospital that we're deploying into. And so as an example, if we're training our ML model on a group of men who are in their 50s and in hospital too, you have primarily women who are in their 30s, let's say, the way that the model may perform may not be the same as the way that it was originally intended within the first hospital. And the same can go on as you continue to think of other cohorts and other and a lot of from a diversity perspective. The model may not perform as intended against additional populations because it wasn't trained on those population, populations. So this is one of the needs for from an AI evaluation perspective. The other would be data drift. And so as we're thinking about a model that was originally developed, let's say, into the 2020, the, the patients that you may see, whether it's from a pandemic perspective or shifts in patient population, new immigrants that may come in, your patient distribution may change year over year. And so again, warranting the need for AI evaluation, you might have created a clinical model that's based off of specific triggers, which is based off of the accuracy of the model. And if we don't think through how that model may evolve over time based off of our um, patient distribution and the accuracy of that model, it may impact the way that we're actually making decisions off of it. And so to counteract some of this, um, there are different methods, um, and uh, quite a bit of these are, are theoretical, but there's one element of pool to data. So can we combine data sets from different organizations to be able to train our models? And of course, you can imagine the host of privacy and security implications that that has. And so it's a little more theoretical at that point. And federated learning, where it's essentially the data is sitting at the home hospital, and the models are being trained locally at each of those hospitals. And again, not a very common approach at this point, more theoretical, but this again is all warranting the need for AI evaluation before the AI model is actually being deployed at your site or scale to others. And that's some of the work that we do. And uh, going back to the original slide that we had on, on THP and some of our diverse patient population, we have a pretty rich patient population that is very diverse. And that's what we leverage in terms of performing AI evaluations within our newly launched AI deployment and evaluation lab. Um, And so this lab is led by Dr. Ben Fine. And really when we think about whether it's data drift, where patient distributions are different from the hospital that's something that's from an ML model is trained at, or if patient distributions change over time, or even if we think about AI value, uh, AI algorithms, um, many of them, which are FDA approved, especially from a medical imaging perspective, haven't actually been trained in the real world. And so do they have that real, do they have the same impact? Does the model fail when it's presented with something that's maybe unexpected in the real world? And from a health equity perspective, when we look at model performance, we may look at it at an aggregate view for an entire population. But does the model perform the same for different age groups, across different genders, across different sort of ethnicities as well. And so the ability again, and that's what we do within the aid lab, is looking at these different cohorts and how does the model actually perform? So to give you an example, and again, this is a a high level example, we've de-identified a lot of the uh, the information around the organization, don't wanna actually give you um, some true data there, but just to give you a feel of what this actually looks like, is a sample project over here where we had an AI algorithm that was uh, really on predicting admission of patients with suspected community-acquired pneumonia. And the clinical impact here is by knowing this um, at at that time, it would help with accelerated admission or discharge from the ED. So our training data was looking at some chest x-rays for patients. Uh, We had a a series of many, many patients where this model was trained on at a different site. which we will refer to as the uh, internal validation site. Um, And we we were able to train this model off of many of these types of patients. Uh, Sorry, the host organization was able to train this model off of many uh, patients that they had. Um, And it was based off of a deep learning model. And so when we look at some of this data, and again, the host the internal validation or the host organization is in gray, When you look at the sensitivity of the model so the positive rate or the specificity which is at that um, negative rate um, you can see that the sensitivity and specificity were lower within the uh, external validation site which is thp and compared to that internal validation so again different performance model performance when it's compared against a different patient population This is a very simplified view. Um, This was probably, and you can see a sample of a few slides that I have on the right side, which was pulled out of a deck of about 20 to to 30 different slides. So looking at the model in terms of the the performance of the model in terms of the clinical context, model calibration, discrimination, um, and overall we roll all of this up into a model fact card to really understand all the different elements within a model. And some of the key takeaways here is when we're thinking, especially within your organization, if you're thinking about AI evaluation or AI deployment, is really understanding um, what is being able to test models against your patient population. Some organizations are even looking at retraining some of those models to really fit for your organization. And the importance to ensure that you have that ongoing evaluation built in into those clinical deployments to ensure that the original use case that you had intended is is continuing to hold true.
1: Great. Thank you, Maddie. Much appreciated. And now, as we uh, bring it home uh, towards the end of these uh, short presentations, we're going to hand the baton back to uh, Microsoft. And we have uh, Naveen Baluri, who's Principal Group Manager of Health AI at Microsoft, and he's gonna talk to us about operational needs.
5: Hello. Um, I'm just trying to make sure that the right screen is getting projected. Uh, So we're
1: seeing your super wide view.
5: Got it, all right, hopefully now it's better. (laughs) There you go. Yeah, thank you. Hey, um, and I'm gonna try and keep this as quickly as possible. My name is Naveen. I work in the product group at uh, Microsoft uh, in the Health AI division, Um, and and it's great to hear some of the previous previous speakers and uh, the perspectives they share. It sort of ties into what we're seeing, uh, and especially something that uh, Sheila brought about. Uh, Now that we are both now part of the same company, uh, it's really exciting to see the, the view and the experience that they bring to healthcare. So my talk is mostly going to be about like how we are approaching it from a platform and tools perspective uh, at Microsoft. Uh, the work that we are doing, you know, we work with big strategic customers, try to understand the use cases and then try to figure out how best to operationalize that. Um, and so uh, I'll give you what I'm seeing um, and I'll start off with some of the trends. And, and I think, you know, Sheila hit upon this. Um, Uh, The, uh, you know, where AI can help, uh, a lot of the the data, you know, 80% is unstructured. This is a place where AI can start uh, start really helping out uh, in being a co-pilot or an assistant. Um, Biomedical knowledge is sort of doubling every 73 days. That's crazy. I mean, if you think about it, uh, it's just hard to keep up. Uh, the clinical trials and studies are 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 growing in three X in the last decade. And then, as we look towards uh, precision medicine, the sequencing costs come keep coming down, and um, there is there is an expectation that it'll be within within a hundred dollar range. and And that means that that's another place where AI can really start to help and bring uh, bring those uh, elements that can drive insights. Uh, So if you know if I, if you know when when I've been sort of working with some of these um, large providers uh, in the U.S., one of the places as we look at these issues where we're seeing where it doesn't quite have the impact that it's expected to have is that um, you look at at some of the re- real-world U.S. cases. There's a lot of research work going on, but when you start applying that to a real-world use case like a molecular tumor board or cancer registry, uh, you see there are missing pieces. The second piece that I've I've sort of noticed is general purpose AI doesn't really scale within the healthcare domain. You know, bigger or better, using these large BERT models that are, you know, quite the the craze nowadays doesn't effectively translate into real uh, impact in the biomedical domain. And then, you know, sort of bridging this biomedical knowledge that's growing and then with the real-world data that's coming from imaging, from from EHRs, uh, is essential in order to make meaning out of it. And finally, I think this is the most important part that I've seen, and uh, others have addressed this as well. Uh, the key is to make this interpretable, uh, to make AI explainable, to have traceability, to have uh, to build trust and confidence with the user using it. And that's one of the pieces that we in Microsoft are, are super focused on. And we're, as Helia mentioned, we're trying to develop and implement it throughout our entire tool chain, this concept of responsible AI. And then the entire cycle of, you know, what uh, Mehdi uh, approached from model, model management, as well as deployment, and then the feedback loop uh, is essential in order to avoid things like the, uh, model drift and others. And, and this is something that you know, we take very, very seriously. Uh, it's uh, you know, like Satya said this before, which artificial intelligence represents one of technology's most important priorities and healthcare is perhaps AI's most urgent application. And, and that's one of the reasons why you know, we are leaning in 100% into these problems, which are pretty tough to handle privacy, transparency, especially when it comes to patient care uh, and patient data. And so we are trying to provide the tools and the platforms that builds that trust and confidence with the users. And now I want to just delve quickly deeper into some of the work uh, that we are doing. Uh, We are going from the ground up. Uh, So one of the places that we are investing in is on these pre-trained models, which can form the basis for a lot of the the model creation that can happen that solves those last mile challenges and these are you know some of the work is around uh, uh, domain specific models so we have a model that we have built with pubmed uh, which has been trained from scratch on pubmed data this is the biomedical knowledge and we see that it far outperforms any general purpose or any other model in the market today and so that's one of the things that we use to train um, and so we're going to provide these as tools as part of our Azure ML offerings in the future. Another piece is one of the big challenges in healthcare is you need to provide ways in which you can uh, train these models with different sources of supervision, structured data, omics, uh, and also be able to do it when there is unlabeled data. So how do you how do you go about training uh, models and fine-tuning models? Uh, when you don't have a lot of uh, label data and getting uh, getting annotated data has been one of the biggest challenges that we have noticed. so we are investing in tools and technologies that can that we call self-supervised learning and um, and can really speed up uh, model development. And then at the next layer and and, and Hilya touched upon cognitive services, how do you then start to combine that with both knowledge and real world data? And that's another place where um, we are starting to invest, and we have a few offerings um, that that I'll just talk about in a bit. Um, And a couple of different use cases that we have tried out with with disease registries, uh, Molecular Tumor Board, and clinical trials. And if you think about this, it sort of spans both care, uh, clinical care, as well as research, as well as clinical operations, like cancer registries, which really help with downstream uh, research. And I know I'm going to run out of time, so let me just um, let me just uh, quickly talk a little bit about some of the some of the results that we're seeing. So some of the tools that I just talked about um, has proven uh, to increase this labeling problem uh, by more than eighty seven percent, and still have really high accuracy at the same time. And this is because of the the tool chains that we're working on, very very highly focused on the work related to healthcare.
1: So with that, I'll just pause and hand back to Mario. Great, thank you, Naveen. Uh, And that brings us to the end of the uh, formal presentations. I would invite all the panelists to uh, turn on their cameras and microphones and uh, be subjected to some questions. Uh, Let's see if Sheila and uh, Helia are able to join. okay so i don't actually see any questions in the chat so i have a list of questions here you all work for um, sophisticated organizations obviously in this space if i am representing a smallish or medium-sized hospital outside of a major urban center how do i go about getting started down this journey two-part two question. One, what do I need to prepare in order to actually take advantage of some of these AI solutions? And two, what do you think is the best use case that I should start with that's going to give me uh, good returns and it's not too uh, complex as a starting point? And we'll start with you, Helia. Absolutely. So one of
2: the um main points that i typically have conversations with our customers in, especially in canada which is a single payer system is to focus on the low hanging fruits of when it comes to ai and deployment because you know the platforms and the infrastructure as i mentioned during my keynote are not ready to uh, you know go beyond a certain level of ai deployment so i would definitely recommend uh, focusing on the low-hanging fruits and in some cases I jokingly say the fruits that are on the ground uh, and these uh, solutions could be the ones that are proven to work that are proven to reduce costs that are proven to increase outcomes uh, some of the examples that I can share is around conversational AI we've seen a massive backlog of calls and um you know just Patients trying to reach the um, the healthcare, the hospitals through phones um, and uh, having asking questions that are repeatable. So, how do we, uh, you know, create a system, a solution that mitigates some of those? Backlog of work and give back time to the care teams to basically spend the time with um, the patients more. Um, Chatbots would be one example. Another area that would reduce the burnout for the for the physicians would be solutions like nuance. Uh, and I'll let Sheila um, you know, dive deeper with that. But we've had several cases, especially in Canada, that. Uh, developed nuanced technologies to reduce uh, physician burnout because they are using the technology to be able to record the uh, patient reports uh, through transcribing their speech to text and also through text analytics and ca- categorizing those symptoms and uh, treatment uh, points. Um, so these are kind of the two options that I think would be a good good way to begin and start.
1: Maddie, how about you? Do you have an answer for us?
4: Yeah, and so, um, you know, like just kind of paraphrasing, like, where to start and where would be good returns. And I think that depends on on the individual hospitals in terms of where their challenges lie. So I'm a big fan of problem active design. And so every hospital might be look different. So some hospitals may have issues more from an operations perspective of capacity. Some may be more from a clinical perspective of some specific uh, deterioration or, or quip indicators. So I think starting there. And also when I think about AI, I think about it in almost three contexts. Like one is the operational effectiveness, which is more thinking about you know, predictive analytics in terms of patient flow or census or ED forecasts or so on then there's a clinical element of reducing harm, um, maybe AI assisted you know, uh, uh, clinical supports as well. And those are more internally focused. And then when you think about population health AI, when you start to connect data sets, that might be a, a later phase because there's additional challenges that, that come within that as well. So I think again, thinking about that use case, thinking about which stream or strategy you wanna focus in on. And then the last piece is kind of tying it back to AI evaluation something that you might see working at one organization, will it actually work against your your patient population? And whether you look at evaluating that AI algorithm externally within your own um, data set, or if you look at peer hospitals that have a similar patient distribution. And then to the last point is what's the sustainability model looking like? Um, So you're gonna be rolling up a little bit of that within your operational team, kind of as a proof of concept but hopefully building into an infrastructure where you'll be able to continue going forward from there as well. And so that more from, not only from an operations perspective but also the clinical team, are we thinking about this at a clinical level? Are you thinking more, a lot of hospitals have looked at an operational center or a command center type of model. So what are you thinking about at a longer term in terms of this strategy?
1: Great. Thanks, Maddie. And Sheila, as a a radiologist, I'm sure you have a few biases here, but uh, why don't you share them with us?
7: Sure. Well, I mean, I think that these are that it's a great question because this area can almost be overwhelming when trying to decide, well, how do you begin? Um, And the first thing I would say is that as many of the speakers have spoken uh, about today, The resources uh, to deploy any of these are huge so one of the things that you can do to help with that is to adopt a single platform that you can then use for deploying multiple different kinds of AI so obviously Nuance has our precision imaging network with a pin platform for deploying various types of AI within radiology and uh, various other specialties as well and then I would say start small. I would say start with a single application because, again, uh, I think there's a lot of unknowns when it comes to the number of resources and the number of challenges that you might face along the way. So I would say start with a single application, uh, whatever it is. Um, and I, I think it's very challenging to get much more specific as to which application among that because it's it's really the Apple Store and just comparison. So um there's so many different areas even just within radiology that you could um uh, see to start with i think that one thing that you can think about is whether you would like to start with something that improves efficiency so in some sense speeds up the current human workflow or something that supplements the current human process so something that's adding additional information in addition to what the human is already seeing so um, you, you know you can decide which that va- is is more valuable to your institution and then pick one use case uh, among that
1: great thank you and i'm actually that we actually have some questions from the audience and i'm going to move to those and this one is primarily for bobby um, so um, Somebody heard today about the um, the uh, trans, uh, sorry the translation function role right in in your understanding where should that live should la- should that possession be within clinical operations within the project management office
3: within the IT teams where where do you think that fits uh- I think honestly, all of the above. Um, I definitely, if, if if I'm honest, um, in order to be successful when it comes to translating a model, uh, I your IT department obviously is is going to be pivotal. Um, unlike the research world, once you're actually translating these things, uh, these models into production, you need uh, an infrastructure to back it that will be will give you the reliability, redundancy, etc. Um, that it, a clinical system needs. Uh, that needs to be done within the clinical IT scope. Um, in terms of um, the PM kind of role, uh, we we work with a PM that's assigned from our our project management office within IMT here, uh, and she's a great resource uh, to help figure out the pathways. So, translating models, especially homegrown stuff from your own institution into clinical deployment, isn't. Uh, a very well trodden pathway, and most institutions don't have an approval process and thing and a, a set of check boxes to go through to get it that way so working with the 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 pmo to do that um, uh, is' it's very helpful and uh yeah sorry there was was there one other component to that question?
1: No, no, it's really where the the role belongs and you're saying
3: everywhere. Yeah, Yeah, I know it's a really unsatisfying answer, but there's so many stakeholders and I think it's important to involve everybody in order for us to be successful, so.
1: And the the, the next question, first of all, comes from somebody I haven't spoken with in a really long time, but uh, it's very Canadian nature, and it's about uh, First Nation governance principles. So, you know, the sort of ownership, control, access, and possession, and are these sort of First Nation principles being included in the thinking around uh, AI that's happening? Mehdi?
4: Yeah, so I think when we think about, uh, again, from an AI perspective and we think about the different populations that we have within our communities, uh, definitely being respectful from a First Nations perspective as well. But I think that all fits into that that strategy of health equity. So when we're thinking about creating these models, ensuring that we've actually um, trained it against the right patient populations, and when we're deploying it, we know all of those segments when we're cohorting that so that it's not discriminating against one versus another. And so I would say that definitely, as we think about health equity, um, those principles, as well as the broader principles that we're we're also looking through, um, that's that's pivotal to to any of our AI deployments. And and it's important to even evaluate against that as well to see how well we're performing.
1: Great, thank you. And Naveen, here's a a question for you. Are you aware of any sort of large-scale AR or ML applications that have been used at sort of population level to help identify patients at risk?
5: Yeah, um, that's a great question, and and I'm sure um, there's a couple of different components there. Like, uh, for example, I'm working with a very large provider here in the U.S., uh, where we are doing... uh, you know, cancer registry kinds of scenarios where we are using AI to extract things like, um, you know, tumor site, histology, um, clinical staging, and pathological staging, and that feeds into these cancer registry, which is a huge sort of regulatory obligation for providers. and it's proving to be fairly successful, but I'd go back to what something that Sheila said, which is being super all comes focused what is the role that AI plays here right uh, and the way we uh, think about it in this in this place is assistive in nature the the problem it's trying to solve is speed up, but it is assistive in that sense that it works to help registrars speed up their jobs uh, to to abstract information into a registry great
1: thank you and and i think we have time for one more question i'm going to throw this to helia he, he, as you know uh, all of these models one require large data sets in order to be trained um they also require access a significant amount of data to do uh you know predictions evaluation diagnosis whatever it is um, one of the impediments is some of the legislation uh, across the country here in Canada, whether it's um, some of the Health Information Acts, those specific to um, you know, um, some of the other provinces. Um, do you see those privacy legislations being updated to accommodate some of this? And who is pushing
0: uh,
1: for those legislations to be updated? I think you're on mute.
2: Sorry about that. This is a fantastic question. And I think, you know, we are hoping and we are uh, educating different parties and different, uh, you know, institutions to move to that direction. Because as we all know, and as we all see, um, we saw today, the data that we are gathering, especially the medical imaging data and medical uh, records, it's doubling and tripling uh, in a very short span of time, so how do we leverage that data is really important, and it actually ties back into the improvement of the care system. Um, There are uh, some institutional uh, rules that are preventing that data sharing uh, platform. I'm not aware of any legislative um, you know, and regulatory um, in place that are preventing the consolidation of the data in Canada, although I'm, I'm not the best person to speak uh, on that. But as far as I know, it's really at the uh, institution level and the data sharing um, uh, where the data sharing happens. Well we have seen great synergy across, especially the research entities, where they have consented data, uh, and the data donors are actually um, participating in these researchers, and we've seen a tremendous amount of improvement into the, uh, you know, creation of a drug combination that would create cure cancer cells. Uh, within the patient's body, Uh, we've seen great improvements when you combine and consolidate all the data especially in the rare disease domain where you know as the name implies you don't have a lot of data in rare disease so you need to have access to as many data points as you as you can across the world to basically look at all the portfolios to get all the different backgrounds different ethnicities different groups of individuals so that you remove that bias that's that's in the nature of the data and i'm really hoping that you know the audience that are listening here Uh, are going to make those changes into our healthcare system so that we create uh, a unified and a centralized data hub um, within Canada. We see many different individual entities who are moving towards that. They are creating their own data sharing platform. Uh, However, they're breaking the silos inside the organizations, but creating these data warehouses at that organizational level. But at the same time, again, we are having larger silos now how do we connect these dots, connecting these data silos into one environment so that we can leverage. A great example is when we um, were looking at the variants of concern in COVID, we needed to have access to the sequence genome of these viruses so that we can come up with the variants of concern and then the next generation of the vaccines and so on and so forth.
1: Great. And Matt, welcome back. And uh, we'll uh, we'll give you the chance to give us all the hook now. So. Uh, <laughs>
0: Um, I, again, thank you to everybody. Um, I just want to remind everybody that everybody here is available on social media in some form. Um, so again, reach out to them, continue the conversation. Um, I will forward off any details and any comments that I've gotten off to the speakers, and there may be opportunities for them to address them in future, you know, future events or through social media, maybe about Twitter, you know, through Twitter or that sort of thing. Other than that, everybody have a fantastic day, and we'll talk to everybody later. Take care. Bye bye.
4: Thank you all. Okay. Bye-bye.